you will need a Bible. We're going to look at a lot of different verses, uh, especially in the book of Proverbs. We'll get to Proverbs in a little while. Uh, if you want to get a, a jump start, we're going to look uh, a little bit, not specifically, but a little bit in the book of Exodus, in the book of Judges, and then we're going to look at a few verses in Song of Solomon. Uh, you may need a head start finding Song of Solomon, so I'll give you a, a heads up there. On Wednesday nights, we're talking about the Bible. In the first front end, front side of this series, we talked about the doctrine of the Bible. What is it that we believe about Holy Scripture, about the 66 books that make up our Bibles? We said we believe it's inspired by God, it's inerrant. We talked about perspicuity, meaning it's clarity. The Bible is authoritative. It is necessary. It's sufficient. It's powerful. It's a unified story from beginning to end. And we spent one week just talking about the beauty of the Bible. And then after that first introductory, what do we believe about the Bible, we started asking the question, how do we make sense of the Bible? We talked about the canon of Scripture, and we said all these other rules that we're about to talk about, they're played out on this playing field, these 66 books. Why do we have these books? Why do we not have more? Why do we not have less? Why do we have these 66? We talked about some basic introductory things, the interpreter, some tools, and then on this end of the end, we're talking about specific genres of writing within the Bible. And last week we looked at narrative and epistle. Tonight we're talking about poetry and wisdom. How many of you, if I just asked you without any context, do you like poetry? How many of you would raise your hand? I would not raise my hand. I remember in English in high school and then in college when we had to do poetry, I just felt lost. I felt confused. I thought, I don't know what's going on. Just give me something direct. I don't understand what's going on. What are you trying to say to me? Um, but you guys are probably better poets than you know, so we'll have a little pop quiz here. This will be a group effort. Are you ready? Number one, you fill in the blank. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men. That's pretty good. Okay, next. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children. Very good. I like that. One, two, buckle my. Three, four, shut the. Five, six, pick up. Seven, eight, lay them. Nine, ten, a big fat. Man, you guys are amazing. I thought you didn't like poetry. Perfect score so far. I think I got one more. Hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle. The little dog laughed to see such sport and... Not quite as confident on that last one as the others, but pretty good. I asked Jake... Uh, our youth and our college are doing this. And I asked Jake, did you take any of those out and put any of those in? He said, yeah, I didn't know if the youth would know all those. And uh, he made some substitutions there. It's remarkable how easily those things rolled off the tongue, right? No preparation. You all, almost all of you said, we don't like poetry. A few of you tentatively raised your hands. You just nailed all of those poems easily. If I had asked you, like I did in staff meeting a few weeks ago, close your Bible and write the Ten Commandments in order, you would have groaned. You would have said, oh, man, murder, adultery, 
Murder. <laughs> if I had said to you, write the 12 apostles in order, some of you wouldn't even know that they're in different orders in different places in the New Testament. Some of you would just panic and say, there's one order, I gotta get them in the exact right order. And you would put people down who probably weren't apostles. Some of you would put Luke on that list. And I'd say, no, Luke was not one of the apostles. Why would you put Luke on your list? If I said to you, write out the 66 books of the Bible in order. Some of you could do it because you know a song. But some of you would panic. Even though we've spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking about the Bible and we spent a week talking about the canon, some of you might have trouble listing all of those things out. But I throw up a few old nursery rhymes, automatic. It's the, that's right, your brains were little, you learned those things, and they've stayed with you because I'm looking around the room and a lot of you aren't little anymore. A lot of you have grown up and you're not little children, but you remember those little children things that you've learned. It's the same experience that you've probably had when you're in the car and a song comes on the radio and you think, oh, wow, I haven't heard this song in years. And then you just start singing along. Every word, you just start singing along. And there's some point in every grown-up's life where your kid looks at you and says, do you know the words to every song? How do you know all the words? And you say, I don't know. I don't remember ever trying to learn them. You just learn them. And so that's, that's part of what we're talking about tonight when we talk about poetry. We'll start with this. Comprising about one-third, think about that, poetry. One-third of the entire Bible, poetry is the second most common literary feature. That's from Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of poetry in the Bible in the form of songs. It overlaps with what we're going to say about Proverbs in just a little bit. There's a lot, a lot of poetry. It's interesting to think about the fact that the people who received the word of God originally, okay, many of them were literate, but many of them were primarily, not exclusively, but primarily oral communicators, They could read, many of them. They could write, many of them. But most of their communication and most of their histories and most of their important cultural information was passed down orally. How did God choose to deliver the bulk of his written revelation to his people? Well, last week we said narrative stories are the most common type of writing in the Bible. Stories are easy to remember. We talked about this last week. We teach the kids, the children's stories because they can get it and they can remember it and they can hang on to parts of the story and they understand what happened. The second most common is poetry. And we might sort of groan and roll our eyes at poetry, but there's something very, very important about it. It helps people remember the content. And so God has delivered his, his word to people in a way that it is clear. We talked about the perspicuity of scripture. He's given them a lot of stories. He's given them a lot of poetry. It's God's graciousness enabling his people to hang on to these things. Let's define poetry in the Bible. Biblical poetry rarely uses rhyme. The nursery rhymes I put up on the screen, that's sort of a, an American English style of poetry. And there's a certain meter and a certain cadence. Biblical poetry rarely uses rhyme, even in the original language. The Hebrews just didn't care too much about rhyming. It wasn't really on their radar. Meter is often lost in translation. And it's lost in translation for two reasons. One reason, in the Hebrew language, 
almost every single word is structured with three continents and three vowel sounds. That's not the case in English. We have single-syllable words, two-syllable words, three-syllable words, long words. In Hebrew, almost all the words are basically structured the same way. And Hebrew syntax is all completely turned upside down and inside out from English syntax. So when you look at something that's written in Hebrew or Greek, but especially Hebrew, and you're putting it into English, you end up with words that are shorter or longer. You end up with sentences that are all out of order from the original. And a lot of the poetic feel of it can be lost. And so what the translators tend to do If you have your Bible, you can just look at the book of Psalms and you can notice the formatting, any place in the book of Psalms, you notice the formatting in Psalms looks differently than the formatting in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke, you've just got paragraphs, straight lines all the way across, they fill up every line. In the book of Psalms, they tend to break it up so that you can recognize the verses and the distinctions within the text. Next, biblical poetry, like all poetry, is less concerned with precise descriptions or scientific accuracy and more concerned with vivid language that evokes emotion. Okay, that is true of Bible poetry. It's true of all poetry. How many children did the old woman who lived in the shoe have? Too many. I didn't give you a number. The point of it is not scientific precision or accuracy. The point of it is to evoke an emotion in you where you feel sorry for this poor woman. Not only does she live in a shoe, but she's got all these kids. She doesn't even know what to do. Poor, poor woman, right? The point of it is not to say she's got 13 or 14 or 20 or however many kids. The point of it is to evoke an emotion. That's true for Bible poetry. We're not going to work through these chapters in detail, Maybe you could do that on your own. I just want to point out something to you. There's a couple of places in the Bible where there are back-to-back chapters. The first chapter tells a story in narrative form. The very next chapter tells the same story in poetry form. Okay? You find it in the book of Exodus, chapter 14 and 15. You find it in the book of Judges, chapter 4 and 5. In Exodus 14 and 15, the people are crossing the Red Sea. And in chapter 14, Moses describes it, and it's just paragraph form. And he just says, hey, this is what happened. We came up to the sea, and the Egyptians were coming, and a wind blew, and it parted, and we crossed, and they came in behind us in the water. He just tells it to you. Then in chapter 15, he sings a song about it. That's poetry. He writes a piece of poetry, sets it to music, and they sing it. Same thing in the book of Judges. Chapter 4, Deborah and Barak lead an army against Sisera. And it's just told to you, straightforward, this is what happened in the battle. Then in the very next chapter, they write a song about it and they sing about it. This is what I want you to pay attention to if you go back and read these accounts. The narrative story, you take at face value and you say, this is how it happened. This is how it played out. When you read the poetry chapters, listen, very carefully so you don't think I'm saying something I'm not. They use language that's a little bit fantastic in describing the exact same event. And because it's poetry, when you read those songs, you're not looking at it for scientific accuracy or precision or specific details. You're reading it to say, what emotion is the author trying to evoke in my heart? So I'll give you a couple of examples. In Exodus 14, 
you read that the Egyptian army, very specifically, rides into the sea before God causes the waters to fall back on them. They ride on their animals, walking on their feet as an army into the midst of the sea. When you read about that same part of the story in Exodus 15, Moses says, God hurled them into the sea. Which one is it? Well, what happened historically is that they marched into the sea and then God brought judgment on them. And as Moses and the people are celebrating it, it's not specifically true that God reached down and he picked them up and he tossed them into the sea. But what Moses is saying is God won a great victory. It wasn't just a strategic mistake that they ran into the sea. It was that. But it was God working a victory for his people. It was as if he hurled the horse and the rider right through the air and into the sea. It's not scientific precision of the events, but it's true reporting of the story to evoke an emotion in you to cause you to be filled with awe and filled with wonder at the way that God delivered his people. Okay, another example, and you can find this in Judges. In the the historical narrative in Judges, it says that they fought this battle beside a river. Right? They fought it on the land beside a river. When you read the poetry part of the passage, it says that the Kishon River swept the enemy away. And then you read that and you say, wait a minute. I thought they just fought a battle. I don't remember reading about the river sweeping them away. It just sounded like they got out there and they fought and God's people won. The poetry is saying to you, it wasn't just that Israel was tougher or stronger or better fighters. It was that God was actually fighting for his people and the forces of nature were unleashed on his enemies. God was the one who secured this victory for his people. Let me give you a few other examples of what we're saying when we say vivid language to evoke emotion. Look at Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16. This is the female character talking about the male character in the song. She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Does that literally mean that the man is in a field of flowers on all fours munching on lilies? No. Does it mean that it's untrue? That it's a lie? That it's factually inaccurate? No, because it's poetry. And we're not ancient Hebrew agrarian peoples and so we read that and we say that's kind of weird you're excited that your husband is out grazing among the lilies I don't understand why that's a big thing for you but that was a meaningful thing to these people so you first you got to understand the words of it and then you got to say what what is the author what is the female speaker in this instance trying to communicate about the person that she loves. Look at another example. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1. We talked about this last week. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. This is the man talking to the woman now. Your eyes are doves. It doesn't literally mean that her eyeballs have been replaced with birds. 
that's something out of a horror movie. And you see that flash on the screen and you change the channel because you don't want your kids to see that and have nightmares. That's creepy. But it's a, a poetic image that made sense for these people in this original context. How many times have we said you've got to understand the historical context? You've got to understand what the intent of the author is. You've got to understand in poetry what is the emotion that is trying to be brought to the forefront. So vivid language intended to evoke emotion. Let me give you a few examples of, of types of poetry in the Bible. One is acrostics. Acrostics are poems that use the Hebrew alphabet in successive words, lines, or stanzas. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there are several places where the Hebrews like to use acrostics. Psalm 119 is an example of that. And if you turn to Psalm 119 in your Bible, you see that there's 22 sections, and you see that each section is named for a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion. It goes all the way through the alphabet. And the first line, you don't see it in English because the words translate differently. But in Hebrew, the first letter of the first word of each line in a stanza begins with Aleph. So Psalm 119, 1 to 8, has eight lines in that stanza. Every stanza begins with a word that starts with Aleph, Aleph all the way through. Why in the world would you do that? It's the same reason we rhyme our nursery rhymes so that people can remember it. It's a, a memory device intended to help the Hebrew people remember what had been written down. Uh, Proverbs 31, the excellent wife. It's the exact same thing. There's 22 descriptions of her in Proverbs 31. Each one of those descriptions begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in English, you read it, it just looks like some random observations about the excellent wife. And you say, that's nice. But if you're a Hebrew speaker, Originally, you're listening to it, you're reading it, and you say, what was the third one? Olive, bait, gimel. starts with a G. Ah, now I know. And it helps you remember. So there are a lot of acrostics when you think about poetry. Next, there are tons and tons and tons of chiasms. Chiasms. These are poems that develop an idea, then they repeat that development in reverse order. I'll show you what I mean in a minute. The main focus, well, go back, let me finish reading. The main focus of a chiasm is in the center of the chiasm. So it's not at the beginning the most important point. It's not at the end the most important point, but it's right in the middle, okay? Take your Bible and look at Luke chapter 1. I want you to read it with me in the text first, and then I want you to, to see it on the screen how it gets broken down. Luke chapter 1. This is the middle of a song. There's a chiasm right in the middle that you don't really see it in English unless you're really looking for it. But look at Luke 1, 71 to 74. Zechariah is singing and he says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. This is how a chiasm breaks down when you pay attention closely. Verse 71 says we will be saved from our enemies. The parallel thought to that comes at the very end. So you see A at the top, A prime at the bottom. Verse 74, the same idea, we'll be delivered from our enemies. It's the same idea at the beginning at the end. And then we move in a layer and we look at verse 72. 
There's a promise to our fathers. B and B prime, verse 73, there's an oath swore to Abraham, to our father Abraham. You say, well, that's the same idea. We're working into the middle. And the middle is verse 72, talks about his holy covenant, right? The holy covenant is the main emphasis of this little piece of poetry, this chiasm. And you want to understand the covenant, you say, okay, there's a promise that's been sworn. That's how, how you help. Uh, you begin to understand what a covenant is. There's a promise that's been sworn to our forefathers, and the end result of this covenant is that God's people will be saved and delivered from their enemies. The main point's in the middle, and it bridges out. Now, I gave you that one because it's really short, okay? Let me show you one. We're not going to read it, but let me show you one that's a little bit longer. This is the prologue of John's gospel. This is John 1, 1 to 18. It's a chiasm. In English, you don't see it. It's just hard to see it. But if you pay attention, you look at John 1, 1, and you say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. And then if you're paying attention, you get all the way to the end at verse 18, and it says that God has been revealed in the Son. It's His only begotten Son. He's made God known. It's parallel ideas. And you can work all the way to the middle of the passage to verse 12, where you say, here's what John really wants you to say, wants you to see in this chiasm, those who do believe in him become children of God. And then all of it bridges out. Okay, look, that's, I've shown you a three-verse chiasm. I've shown you an 18-verse chiasm. Song of Solomon is one giant chiasm. The whole book is structured that way. And when you read it in English, you're like, oh, there's a there's a chorus, there's a guy, there's a girl. They're talking about the guys eating lilies and the girl has doves in her eyes and what's going on. And if you really pay attention, it's a chiasm. Flip back to Song of Solomon, Bible drill tonight. Look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 16 to chapter 5, verse 1. Virtually any commentary worth its salt on Song of Solomon will tell you these verses are talking about the sexual union of a man and a woman. And it's the very center of the chiasm. Everything else in the book builds to this one point right in the middle. It says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my, will, with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. In English, to non-agrarian people, that's just kind of a weird mashup of verses. But have you ever heard, had the experience of listening to a song on the radio with your kids and your grandkids, and you're listening in real time and you say, oh, that's what that song's about? Change the channel. We're not going to listen to that song. I never knew. I just thought they were singing about, oh, they're singing about sex. That's what most songs are about on the radio. And you pay attention. If you have ears to hear it, that's what those verses are talking about. And it's right at the middle of the book, and it's a giant chiasm all the way out. It's an amazing, amazing structure to Song of Solomon. When you read the book of Proverbs, Proverbs feels like the most random bunch of bullet point ideas coming at you and you can't get your head around them. If you will slow down and make connections, 
you will find chiasms all the way through the book of Proverbs. Not every verse fits into a chiasm, but you will find them all the way through the book of Proverbs. It's one of the ways the Hebrews love to write poetry. So moving on, one more thought here, parallelism. Parallelism is a phenomenon whereby two or more successive poetic lines dynamically strengthen, reinforce, and develop each other's thought as a kind of emphatic additional thought. The follow-up lines further define, specify, expand, intensify, or contrast the first. The Hebrews loved chiasms, and they loved two-line couplets. Okay, a couplet, a couple, two lines that go together. And there's a couple of different things, uh, examples of this. I just gave you three. There's like dozens of these, but I gave you the three most common. Synonymous parallelism involves restatement of a single idea. So look in your Bible at Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs 19 verse 5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. That's the same thing said two ways, just for emphasis. And that's all, you find that all the way through the book of Proverbs. When you read that in verse 5, he's not trying to tell you that a false witness is one thing and he who breathes out lies is another thing. What he's saying is liars will be punished. Liars will not escape. There will be a consequence. It's the same idea repeated. So that's a, a synonymous parallelism. There's also antithetical parallelism, parallelism where you contrast two ideas. So look at Proverbs 11. Verse 20, notice the contrast here. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but, that word but, lets you know there's a contrast, but those of blameless ways are his delight. And the contrast is obvious. Crooked heart, contrast with blameless ways, abomination, contrast with delight. So it's an antithetical parallelism. The last one is synthetic parallelism. Look at Exodus 15, which we referenced earlier. Exodus 15, verse 11. Exodus 15, 11. Synthetic parallelism is where you, one single idea is not just restated, but it's developed. It's sort of expanded upon so here's the first idea in, in Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Okay, the obvious implied answer is no one. No one is like the Lord. He is unique. He is holy. But then he develops it. Who is like you, number one, majestic in holiness, number two, awesome in glorious deeds, number three, doing wonders. So there's a development. There's an explanation. No one is like the Lord. What makes him unique? Well, he's alone, majestic in holiness, glorious deeds, and doing wonders. So that's another type of parallelism. This really is important at several points in the Bible. We talked about one of these just this last week when we looked at the end of John's gospel. And I told you that in John 21, as Jesus is talking to Peter, he uses several different words, two different words for love. He uses the verb agapao and he uses the verb phileo. And some scholars think, this is not an uncommon view, some scholars think that Jesus is trying to compare and contrast two different types of love. One means one thing, one means another thing. That would be a type of Hebrew poetry. It wouldn't be uncommon. Other scholars, 
I'm not a scholar, but I agree with these scholars say, it's not a compare and contrast, it's just a parallelism. It's just using different words to make the same point. Peter, I need to know if you love me. He uses agapao, he uses phileo. Those words overlap in their semantic range. It's another type of poetry, and it helps you understand what the point of that passage is. Here's the big takeaway for poetry, okay? When you read narrative in the Bible, we talked about this last week, you're just looking and saying, what's the plain sense of this story? It's the same thing for epistle, right? Narrative and epistle. You're just reading it, and you take it at face value, You're not trying to decode anything. You're not looking for anything hidden or mysterious. You're just trying to understand the the vocabulary and the grammar and the syntax. When you read poetry, there's a two-step process. Number one, you've got to make sense of the vocabulary and the grammar and the syntax. Your eyes are like doves. But then you've got to stop and say, what is he trying to say when he says your eyes are like doves? Psalm 1. What is he trying to say when he says that the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water? I understand the grammar of that sentence. There's a tree, it's planted by a stream. It's a healthy tree, I get it. What is the point that he's trying to make? And you're not looking for anything really mysterious, but you've got to move beyond the plain sense of the words to say what is the emotion or the imagery, the vivid language that the author is using to evoke something in my heart. Okay, so that's poetry. Now, Let's talk about wisdom. Every culture has a body of wisdom. Every single culture has a body of wisdom. Sometimes it's written down, sometimes it's not written down. And my hunch is, because I have such faith in the elite Wednesday night crowd, that just like you pass the poetry test, you can pass the wisdom test, okay? You fill in the blank. Here we go. See how wise you are. A bird in the hand is worth... That was not really very confident, but that was right. Okay, here we go. Next, absence makes the heart grow better. Next, actions speak louder than? You're getting wiser as we go. All good things come to an end. Next, all that glitters is not gold. All's fair in love and, okay, next, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, and one more, a picture is worth, okay, y'all are wise, you're such wise people, we've got all these little pithy proverbial statements, I just searched up a website and said like proverbial wisdom, American wisdom, did you notice all those started with A's? Okay. There was like 10,000 of these on the website. I didn't even get through the A section. I thought, be creative and like jump down to the Z's, but I just got stuck in the A's. You nailed all of those. We know tons and tons. If I just had gone through that website, you know all of those little proverbial cliches, those little sayings, right? There's a lot of those in the Bible and... There is also a type of wisdom in the Bible that is not easily reducible to a little saying. And so we're going to talk about both of those real quick. Uh, Number one, let's talk about the book of Proverbs contains instructive wisdom. It's a type of wisdom. And the books of Job and Ecclesiastes include reflective wisdom. Two different types of wisdom literature in the Bible. We usually just think Proverbs. Proverbs. 
and we like Proverbs. Uh, they fit pretty well most of the time with American pragmatism, and they're just pretty direct, and they're pretty to the, uh, to the point and blunt, and they're short, and you can just read one and say, I read my Bible today. I read from the book of Proverbs. And it, we like them. They're just straight to the point. You don't have to think a lot about most of them. There's some Proverbs that you read them and you say, well, that's kind of strange. I don't understand that. But most of them are just really easy and straightforward. Then you read the book of Job, and you read the book, the book of Ecclesiastes. In my morning Bible reading, I just finished Ecclesiastes this morning. And as you read it, you just find yourself thinking, if you're really paying attention closely, this is kind of weird. I, they're saying this, but I'm not sure that's right. And they're saying this, but if you pay attention in both of those books, you say, that doesn't sound right. Is that really in the Bible? How did I miss this all those years? It's a different type of wisdom. It's a reflective wisdom that you've got to slow down and think, what does this mean? And so there's two types of wisdom. We're, we're going to talk about instructive wisdom first. You will find Proverbs, obviously in the book of Proverbs. You'll find Proverbs in Job and Ecclesiastes. You'll find Proverbs uh, different places in the book of Psalms. You'll find Proverbs, a lot of them, on the lips of Jesus. He says a lot of things that, that are proverbial wisdom. You find a lot of Proverbs in the book of James. When I preached through the book of James several years ago, one of the things we kept saying is, I think James read the book of Proverbs. I think he listened to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and I think he read the book of Proverbs because a lot of what's in James mirrors the book of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. Possibly, this is a quote, possibly the best-known form of wisdom literature is the proverb, a concise, memorable statement of truth, learned over extended human experience. Grammatically, a proverb occurs in the indicative mood, and thus makes a simple declaration of life as it is. It's not a question. It's not usually, it's not usually a command. It's usually just a simple observation about life. Some of them sound really spiritual. Some of them sound kind of crass. And there's several different types of Proverbs. I didn't make you fill any of these blanks in because I want you to flip around in your Bible and look at these with me. Look at Proverbs 11. This is a descriptive proverb. It's simply making an observation. Proverbs 11, verse 24, says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. There's no command in that verse. There's no command for you to give money. It's just an observation. It's just the author looking around at the world saying, you know what's kind of interesting? There's a lot of people who give a lot, and yet they don't run out of money, and it's like they, they keep prospering. And there's other people who are very stingy and tight-fisted, and they seem to always be lacking. Huh, that's interesting. Just an observation. Okay? It's a descriptive proverb. There's also prescriptive proverbs that are a little bit more direct. Look at Proverbs chapter 22. 22, verse 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor. Now that's a command. That's an imperative. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. That's a proverb that is definitely, openly, directly intended to influence or curb or change your behavior. 
do not do this, and here's the reason why. Don't rob from poor people because they're poor and they can't stop you from robbing them. They're helpless. Why? Because God's going to take care of that someday. He's going to rob those people of life who rob the poor. It's a prescriptive proverb. Think about taking a prescription. Your doctor says, do this. Take this, right? It's a prescriptive proverb. Comparative proverbs. Look at Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, verse 17. It's comparing and contrasting one thing with another. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. That verse has nothing to do about you being a vegetarian and giving up ox meat. That verse is saying it's better to have a plate of salad and leave dinner a little bit hungry but to leave with love in your heart, loving others and others loving you. It's better to have that than to have your belly full from a big old steak where you got nothing but strife and hatred in your personal life. Something is better than the other. Something is not as good as the other. It's comparing those two things. And notice, the application is sort of left to you. Like, what do I do with that proverb? It doesn't tell you to do anything. It's just an inspired comparison saying one thing is better than another thing, and you're left to think about it. Antithetical Proverbs, they present opposites. I, I know I gave you six chapters here. Just look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. Most of Proverbs 10 to 15 are antithetical Proverbs. This is the bulk of what you'll find. Proverbs 10, 1 says the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. A wise son, a wise child makes a glad father, a glad parent, but a foolish son, a foolish daughter is a sorrow to his mother, a sorrow to her parents. It's making a, a, a comparison between opposite things. One last is uh, example Proverbs. If you look at Proverbs chapter 24, these are Proverbs that use the word I. Proverbs 24, verse 30. It's sort of a personal experience. I have seen something. I've witnessed something. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the field of a vineyard of a man lacking sense. Behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. I saw, considered it. I looked. I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Example Proverbs. Now, several things you got to know about Proverbs. We'll move through these quickly. Proverbs make a single specific point about life. They are not intended to cover every possible circumstance or exception. I think the best example of this that I've given you is Proverbs 22 verse 6. I've heard people quote this as if this is some sort of ironclad promise, some sort of magical formula that parents can hang on to. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. It's good parenting information. You need to know that as a parent or as a grandparent. But even as I read it out loud and you look at it, you can think about people that it's not true for. There's exceptions to that. There's other factors that play into it. And 
those exceptions don't mean the proverb isn't true. The proverb is true. All things being equal, it's the way God has designed the world to work. If you raise up a child in this way when they're old, that's the way that they will go. But there's a lot of other factors that play into that. And so uh, here's a couple of quotes from Robert Stein. I didn't have room for these on your notes, but I'll throw them up on the screen. He says, Proverbs function as general truth. The presence of exceptions does not refute the truth of a proverb. These wise, memorable observations, which are usually found in poetic form, provide inspired principles upon which believers can and should build their lives. Are there exceptions? Yes. But are they true enough that you ought to build your life on them? Yes, they are. Next, proverbs are not laws. They're not even promises. That's important. This is not a book of promises. These are general observations learned from a wise, careful look at life. Biblical proverb is a short, pithy saying that expresses a wise, general truth concerning life from a divine perspective. So how do you make sense of proverbs? Here's three rules for how you interpret this book. Number one, you go into it knowing that proverbs hold true most of the time, but there are exceptions. Most of the time... This is the way life works. This is how you can expect life to work. But there are exceptions. And so when you see an exception in real life, it doesn't throw you for a loop. It doesn't make you scratch out that individual proverb. Next, proverbs were not written in a modern Western culture. So when the author of the proverb says, if you're lazy, you will be poor, he didn't know anything about the Mega Millions Powerball. He didn't know that you could be the laziest person in the state and hit the jackpot and be a 500 millionaire millionaire. So you can throw that up all you want, but that wasn't what he was even talking about. He's just looking around in a pre-modern agrarian society saying, if you don't get out there and work in the field, you're going to be hungry, man. That's just the way it works. And there's truth in that proverb even today even though our culture is different in their exceptions. Last, Proverbs have got to be applied to life in a fallen world. Meaning, when you look at Proverbs 22.6 and it says, Raise up a, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. When you read that, you understand that child also is living in a broken, busted, fallen world. And there's fallen, sinful, wicked influences within a home and within a school and within a community. And there are sin issues that happen in individual lives that sometimes affect other people. And there's consequences to sin that even when God is gracious and forgiving, the consequence is not removed in a specific situation. And all of those things, sin and brokenness and the consequences of sin, all of those things play into all the dynamic at work when you think about parents and children, but the proverb still holds true and is still worth hanging on to. You just got to apply it to life in a fallen world. That's where Job and Ecclesiastes come in. In some sense, Job and Ecclesiastes are the exceptions to the rules of Proverbs. If all the wisdom we had in the Bible was the book of Proverbs, we would come away saying, well, this is easy. You just do this, and this is the outcome. It's like math. You put this formula in, and you get this answer. But then you read Job and Ecclesiastes, and it's like God throws a monkey wrench in the whole thing and says, yeah, but not always. Not always. Sometimes there's other stuff going on. Sometimes there's spiritual forces 
at work that you don't know anything about. Job never knew anything about the spiritual warfare going on in his life. He never got any of those answers this side of eternity. And these are exceptions uh, in some sense to the, the rules of Proverbs. When you read Job and you read Ecclesiastes, you've got to give careful attention to the identity and perspective of the speaker. The identity and the perspective of the speaker. Let me mention just a few examples of this. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's friends. Their words are recorded in the Bible. But at the end of the book of Job, God shows up and he rebukes all of those men for their folly. So when you go back and read their words, their words are in the Bible, but they're wrong. They get rebuked for those words. So you can't quote those guys as if they're right. Their words are included so that you understand they're wrong. And basically what those three guys try to do is they try to take the book of Proverbs and slap Job across the face with it and say, look, if you do this, you get this. So clearly you haven't done it. And Job keeps saying, I don't think that's what's going on here. And they just keep slamming him with Proverbs, slamming him with Proverbs. This is automatic. Something wrong with you, Job. I don't think that's what's going on. So you, you understand the identity and their perspective. You also listen to Job. Job says a lot of things that are true in the book, but at the end of the book, he repents too. So then you got to go back and read what Job says and say, okay, some of this stuff Job says is right, but some of it is inappropriate. Some of it didn't need to be said because Job came to the end, and when God showed up, not only did those guys get rebuked, but Job actually repented. Of a, lot, a lot of the things that he said. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you've got to pay attention to the, the whole point of the first chapter in the context of the book. It's a man seeking meaning and purpose in life as if there were no God or afterlife. And so he makes some conclusions in the book that don't sound very Christian. They don't sound very biblical. But you've got to understand it's a thought experiment. It's somebody saying, what if this was all there is, what's under the sun? What if there wasn't any God above the sun? It was just this under the sun. This life on this earth was all there is. And he just plays it through in his mind, and he lives it out in his life, and he seeks meaning and purpose. And some of the conclusions he draws, you think, I don't think Christians are supposed to do that. He says, do this, but I don't think you're supposed to do that. But the perspective is, what if there were no God? If there were no God, this is what you ought to do. And then at the end of the book, he comes full circle and he says, there is a God, and here's what you ought to do. So you just got to pay attention to perspective in the author, uh, the speaker, in these reflective uh, types of wisdom. Here's the deal, big picture. You know, like the back of your hand, the poetry of our culture. Right, we proved that. I throw the nursery rhyme out, you repeat it, you got 100. You know the proverbial wisdom of our culture because your mom and your grandma and your grandpa and your fourth grade teacher and everybody taught you these things along the way. And I throw up these little pithy American proverbs and you just fill in the blank one right after the other, you nail them all. Our aim as Christian people is to be people who are so familiar with the poetry of this book and so familiar with the wisdom of this book that it just rolls off our tongues 
like that song you hear on the radio and you just start singing along. Like that nursery rhyme you just fill in the blank. Like that proverbial saying you can just rattle off easy peasy. And not only that we know it, not only that we can say uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, but that we understand it. We know it. We get what it means. It changes the way that we feel in our emotions and it changes the way that we live in terms of obedience. And I think all of that is wrapped up in Psalm 1. And so we started with Psalm 1, and I think I'll end with Psalm 1, and then we'll pray. Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree... Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish.